This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College takes great pride in its diversity. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Philip Ewing, the National Security Editor for National Public Radio. Phil has been in that position since November 2015, but also he's had a long history of reporting about military and defense issues for Politico.com, Military.com, and the Navy Times. Phil talks with us about President Trump's recent trip to the Far East and other hot-button issues concerning national security. Phil, I know you didn't go on the Far East trip, but... Uh, you had people covering it. One of your colleagues did go. Uh, assess that trip from uh, your neutral journalistic point of view. I think the president was very pleased with the outcome of the trip. He likes pomp and pageantry, and he felt like he was treated the right way, especially in China, where China's President Xi Jinping, who's just had a new uh, extension of his term or his lease on power there uh, granted Trump access to portions of Beijing, the forbidden city where foreigners typically may not go, and really laid out the red carpet for him in a way that the president really enjoyed. So for the president's personal satisfaction and from an optics perspective, I think the White House definitely viewed it as a win. And also the Trump really, uh, President Trump really modulated some of his past very strong comments about China in particular, which for the Chinese was a win. On the campaign trail, uh, President Trump used rhetoric about the way China, in his view, was taking advantage of the United States that was uh, quite extreme and quite harsh. And then when he was in China on this trip, he said, look, I don't blame you Chinese for getting the best deal you can and uh, taking the best advantage that you can of the United States because, in the president's view, uh, the country had been poorly run before he was inaugurated. And uh, so it was natural that, uh, you know, uh, somebody sophisticated was going to find a sucker overseas in, in the case of China and the United States and exploit that sucker for as much as, in this case, uh, they could for the Chinese. Um, there's a lot of people who objected to that rhetoric. And in fact, it's very strange if you think about the political standards the president waived, uh, both as president and as a candidate, about how the Chinese had stolen American jobs and had stolen value out of the U.S. economy and stolen all this intellectual property through its cyber espionage, etc., for him to go over there and say, you're doing such a great job, you've really exploited the United States brilliantly. Um, but President Trump thinks what he thinks at the time that he thinks it, and then he moves on and thinks something else or expresses something else at least. And so that's become kind of part and parcel of his presidency so far. The other, that's kind of the big long-term accomplishment or takeaway for the trip. The medium term was about North Korea. Uh, the president has been trying to marshal support from elsewhere in the region for his campaign of pressure against North Korea, which uh, is threatening the United States with the prospect of a nuclear weapon that it could deliver 
on a ballistic missile. And I think the jury is still out as to how effective he was there, whether the Chinese, whether the Japanese, whether the South Koreans had the needle moved at all in terms of doing anything different from what they were doing before on the North Korean issue. He met with Putin, albeit briefly, in Vietnam, uh, but that was followed up last week by a reported hour-long phone call. Uh, Was any of that expected? The White House had signaled the possibility of a short informal meeting with Putin on the sidelines of this summit that took place in Da Nang in Vietnam. And then it had announced beforehand that he was planning to talk to Putin on the phone. And the issue under discussion was Syria. There was um, the readout from the White House and the readout from the Kremlin that talked about the two leaders' exchange of views about the future of the Assad regime in Syria and the way that the post-conflict wind-down of that operation could potentially look or the way they want it to look, but not a lot of detail if I remember the readouts correctly. There was still this kind of very high-level exchange of goals taking place between the two leaders, and I don't know how many technical details they actually uh, were able to hammer out or whether even whether they tried to and this was just more of a check-in about how they might be on the same page uh, based on previous conversations about the future of the conflict there. Vladimir Putin, uh, the president of Russia, had just had a visit with Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, whom he embraced very publicly in a photograph as a clear demonstration of his continued support for Assad and his regime. Assad and his father are longtime Russian clients. Their military officers train in Russia. They buy military hardware from Russia, and they've been hosting Russian troops, Russian uh, aircraft, Russian armored vehicles, Russian infantrymen, and others um, as a part of the conflict there. And the signal from the Russians appears to be that they are going to stick with Assad, that they want him to remain in power, that they will continue to support his regime with airstrikes and other uh, and cruise missile attacks and, and military military operations on that score, and that uh, you know the Russians have really gained a solid foothold in in the Middle East that they didn't have before the Syrian conflict, which is kind of the new reality of the region that the United States is going to have to deal with. There hasn't been a lot of roadmap establishment by the Trump administration about what comes next in Syria and Iraq now that the major fighting we understand is over against the. Um, ISIS forces there, and uh, that appears to be still in the works, which was the nature of that phone conversation the two leaders had. All of the pomp and circumstance and ceremony and optics uh, of the trip, uh, this seems to be a pattern. The president seems to eat that up. Uh, Does that mask perhaps real motivation on the the part of foreign powers? Is this a a way of manipulation or uh, avoidance? It seems like, obviously, uh, the president changed his tune on China, as you've uh, previously indicated. That is the track record that has been established. But what is not clear is how consequential any of these individual changes are going to be. The other big example that a lot of people might remember is when the president traveled to Saudi Arabia, he was given a full shake level welcome and a lot of people remember he helped uh, the crown prince or the king inaugurate this new counterterrorism center by touching this black orb that turned on all these monitors for people to ostensibly watch uh, surveillance equipment or something else which the president loved and it 
evidently brought the the Saudi leadership very close to the White House and has gotten a sanction from the White House and from top people in the Trump administration about the priorities of Saudi in the Middle East, whether it's been isolating um, Qatar, uh, which the Saudis argue are, is too close to Iran and sponsors terrorism, or this part of uh, this pressure campaign that Saudi Arabia has been waging against Hezbollah, which is this Iranian-linked uh, Shiite uh, political movement and, and arguably terror group, uh, a lot of people call it in Lebanon, or in the case of China, by simply viewing Xi Jinping and the Chinese as the peer of the United States and not a a rising power, as previous administrations have called it, but instead someone who looks eye to eye into the eyes of the president of the United States and stands toe to toe with the United States in the world. The Chinese, for their part, are largely concerned with their own internal audience. What she wants to tell Chinese people is that he received Trump again as an equal, not as a supplicant power hosting a foreign leader uh, who was its better. And Trump, at least in terms of the comments that he made, was as good as that perception describing his admiration for the Chinese, for his uh, his respect for the way uh, China's economy grows and the ways uh, China's leadership works. And if, from that perspective, that was definitely a win for the Chinese because what she and the Communist Party there constantly need to message Chinese people is that they are the best custodians of China's future. And so the price that Chinese people pay for not having democracy, not being able to organize their own political parties, not being able to access a free press or the public internet, most of them, is the best position in the world they can get and the best growth they can get economically from Xi and the communists, which uh, was a message that, for his part, Trump Trump helped sell to the Chinese um, we haven't heard the president talk very much about this since he got back. But again, based on his track record from these previous visits, he could change his tune the next time he talks about it. Well, as the average news consumer uh, out here in the Midwest, help me understand something, if you can. We have the optics of this trip. Obviously, it was uh, very glamorous, if that's uh, an appropriate word. Uh, it was one of the longer trips, if not the longest trip, that a president has made uh, overseas in 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 recent times. Uh, went with obvious uh, some intentions with North Korea, with China, and other other things. Uh, come back and and as the news consumer, I'm awaiting uh, next steps, uh, follow up to this. And instead, uh, I get a weak debate over three kids shoplifting and uh, a spitting contest between uh, the president and one of the fathers on Twitter. Uh, Explain that to me. The way President Trump seems to respond to the initiatives launched by his own administration, people who are the technical specialists on the work that the United States wants to do in Asia in this case, is to be to react to each individual thing that's happening to him at that moment. And so um, what may have taken place is the State Department professionals in Beijing and the United States 
raised with the president before his meeting with Xi Jinping that there was this case of these UCLA basketball players who had been detained for shoplifting uh, in China. And Trump brought it up because he had been asked to bring it up. And Xi Jinping said, I'm a merciful world leader and I'll let these Americans go back home. And then when one of their family members said, well, the president didn't have that much to do with this or shoplifting's that not that big of a deal. There, there were a lot of comments that took place after uh, the president right. came back. He felt personally aggrieved and affronted by that. And he posted a tweet afterwards saying, it wasn't the White House, it wasn't the State Department, it was, in all caps, it was me. As in he, Trump, had shown his own largesse and mercy to help these guys. And he was frustrated with how ungrateful uh, the father of one of these players had appeared. Um, that may have been good for the daily churn of headlines, or it may have been good for uh, TV coverage because there was a press conference with these boys who came out and talked about how them how much they appreciated this or how they realized how foolish they had been to try to shoplift. But it did take the national focus in terms of the daily churn away from the more consequential issues right. of the U.S. position in Asia. And the other thing that's taking place in the background here is there were a lot of advocates under the previous administration for this trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have sewn together the United States and many of the other big Asian economies, except for China, in a free trade agreement that would have enabled uh, lower barriers for South Korean and Japanese and American and other exports and imports across the region. And in the view of these international boosters, that would have been a great bulwark against China for the United States with its democratic allies. And that didn't come together because it became a big campaign issue. There were a lot of objections by Republicans and some on the left about the way that it would have steamrolled over opposition and potentially hurt American employment, uh, depending on your perspective. And so Trump did away with it. And the foreign policy mechanism of the United States wants to retain the influence the United States has in Asia. But without that tool, what it relies on more are these bully pulpit style visits and the public comments of the president, as opposed to a legal framework or a trade framework that might have been put in place if things had turned out differently. And um, that's the other bit of background here. The president in the view of critics and some of the international commentators didn't come back from Asia with very many new commitments or very many new things to be able to announce. And so the UCLA basketball player thing kind of became the story since there wasn't much else there. And the other thing to remember here is the United States and China have the most consequential relationship of any two countries in the 21st century. Um, they're the world's biggest trading partners. Uh, the Chinese hold a great many U.S. Treasury bonds, a great deal of the foreign holdings of American debt. And so that relationship is going to be important no matter what. And it's extremely and so, complex and multi-layered. Correct. It's extremely complex and multi-layered. And the two countries are in symbiosis now. They One cannot work without the other for m many reasons. And so no matter what happens every time an individual president makes a trip or an individual Chinese leader visits the United States, there are all these huge framework relationship um, and other aspects of the bilateral uh, intercourse between the two nations that remain in place. And that's why if you're the president, if you're either president, you can say, well, maybe we didn't get everything we wanted this time, but there'll be another time because there has to be with these two great powers. We'll be back after this message. 
The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University and its leadership and faculty strongly support diversity in all of its forms. The college has defined the concept of diversity as acceptance and respect for all and understands that each individual comes with a unique set of life experiences shaped along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, socioeconomic status, age, abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, and all other ideologies. At the Scripps College of Communication, diversity is about understanding one another and moving beyond simple tolerance to embracing and celebrating the rich dimensions contained within each individual. Diversity enables the exploration of varied life experiences in a safe, positive, and nurturing environment. To learn more and find out how you can become part of this diverse community, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to shift gears a little bit, and you've spent uh, a lot of your uh, reporting career uh, covering the military and and certainly national security issues. Uh, As the average news consumer, again, uh, we hear more and more retired generals uh, making major complaints uh, against President Trump or at least expressing major concerns. Uh, First of all, is this unprecedented? And secondly, what does this really mean? I don't know if it's unprecedented because there is a tradition of political generals or outspoken military commanders that really goes back to the Civil War. I mean, George McClellan actually ran against Abraham Lincoln in 1864, which nobody remembers. Um, but he was <laughs> right. he was deeply critical of Lincoln, and Lincoln was deeply critical of him, which is why he fired him as the commander of the Union Army. And happily for our national history, McClellan lost and Lincoln won, and then the, the rest of history played out in that way. The question you raise is interesting, though. Have there ever been this many who have spoken out so forcefully about a president and I don't know off the top of my head if, in fact, that has been the case. Uh, there's a little bit of news about this because the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, is has been making some comments recently saying that he thinks um, the president's closest commanders are themselves to political, especially John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, and H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor. And in McMaster's case, it's unusual because he's in active duty army general officer. He's a three-star general who has taken off his uniform for most of the photographs, but retains his Defense Department paycheck, and uh, he's going to be eligible for his army pension. And theoretically, if he finishes this tour as National Security Advisor, he could go get a fourth star and be a commander uh, someplace else in the army. But they are tied in inextricably with the president now, with his policies, with the political style that he's chosen. And uh, everything they do and say from this point forward is kind of uh, colored a little bit by their closeness to Trump. Um, I don't know that there's anything that can be done. And I also don't know that this, is, it, this isn't one of those things where 
Americans want judges, uh, for example, to be completely apolitical. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of safeguards to be observed. And in states where there are appointments versus elections, there's different ways this works. But the nature of public life in this country is going to mean that there's politics involved with nearly everything, especially on these large public questions. And so I don't, I, I don't know how you can stop current or former commanders um, in these senior and highly visible roles from being political by the nature of the administration they serve or making comments based on their views about the way national security policy is being conducted without um, really changing the way our system works. Um, The strictures definitely get much tougher the farther down the food chain you go. And in fact, every election season, the U.S. military services always really crack down on rank-and-file uniformed service members, officers, and enlisted and tell them, don't show up at political protests in your uniform. Or if you're on Facebook, please be careful to make sure that people know the views you're expressing are your own and not those of the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Army. And um, the, the, the times that we're living in in which everything is highly political and which politics itself has become this kind of expressive phenomenon by individual people projecting outward as opposed to the influence of parties um, pushing down from the top level means that I wouldn't be surprised if it continues and that this notion of current or former commanders speaking out on explicitly political subjects um, doesn't continue and and actually get um, greater or get more intense as time wears on. Staying with the military for a moment, uh there have been a, a series of fatalities and incidents uh, in the Far East with the Navy, with ships running into each other, with uh, naval plane crashes uh, over the last several months. For the first time this weekend, uh, over the long holiday, I started hearing some commentators raise the specter of perhaps uh, some form of hacking or cyber uh, interference. Uh, Is this something that is just a a pundit's dream, or is this something that people are taking seriously and following up on? There's no evidence of any hacking or cyber interference with the spate of mishaps that have taken place in the Pacific with the Navy. Unfortunately, the explanation is not that simple or clear-cut. It's kind of like the financial crisis. Why did the financial crisis take place? Uh, There's 50 different reasons, and you can pick your favorite one, but the readiness issues that have affected the Navy, in this case, and the military generally, are the result of a lot of different threads uh, running for many years And it's possible for reasonable people to disagree about which one is the most important one. But the fact is, they're all coming together at the same time. And very sadly, this year, they're all coming together with lethal consequences, in this case, specifically for the Navy. Um, After the Cold War, the U.S. military did not enjoy the so-called peace dividend. And it uh, yielded a whole generation of so-called MBA admirals in the case of the Navy. And so in the 2000s, there was a whole generation of flag officers who wanted to do more with the less, to field smaller crews on ships, to do less maintenance, to change the way the fleets were uh, organized, trained, and equipped um, to deal with the fact that they had um, 
less money and that they could minimize the most expensive aspect of any military unit, which is the people. If you have fewer people, you can uh, use more money for other things, whether it's uh, operations and buy fuel or uh, buy fancy new toys elsewhere that don't require as many humans to operate, such as uh, drones or other remotely operated systems. And these decisions have had real long-lasting problems in the case of the Navy because there are fewer sailors on ships to do regular maintenance. Uh, There are fewer uh, experienced officers because there's less training. And those factors, those cost-cutting and cost-saving decisions taken 5, 10, 15 years ago are paying off in the way the fleets operate now such that these ships are not in good material condition. Their crews don't know what they're doing as well as their predecessors might have. And when they get into situations which are not extremist, these aren't wartime conflicts where they're trying to fight the Japanese in World War II, they're literally trying to make normal voyages from ports that are very familiar to them. Their bases in Japan or down to Singapore, where many ships go, including many U.S. warships, they just can't do it. And uh, the accident investigations the Navy has released for both of them confirm that instead of this being some sophisticated Chinese cyber weapon that shuts down all the electronics on a destroyer, it's literally watchstanders on the bridge who don't know how to operate their own equipment. I remember reading the accident investigation for the ship in Singapore, the USS John S. McCain, with my jaw on the floor because the ship was running uh, in such a way where the sailors on the bridge some of whom were juniors, some of whom had transferred from another ship, a cruiser, could not operate their own switches and didn't know what they were doing. And so they were surprised when the ship began to turn out of its channel and go in front of this cargo ship that crashed into it. And sadly and tragically, that ship was moving at such a rate of speed and had a big bulbous bow that went under the waterline that crashed into the John S. McCain and and flooded a compartment and killed 10 sailors. And something very similar took place on uh, the USS Fitzgerald, the earlier ship, which was off Japan. The sailors on the bridge, including the junior officer who was supposed to be responsible, just didn't know how to calculate the distances and the, the points of approach of other ships that were Uh, sailing that night. It was very dark and merchant vessels aren't as careful as warships, but um, there was no reason why they shouldn't have seen and avoided the ship that crashed into the Fitzgerald, um, but they didn't. And this is something that Navy leaders have known about for a long time. I used to cover the Navy for the Military Times newspapers um, much earlier in my career. And even in those days, there were official reports that were being generated within the military, within the Navy, saying, we have these readiness problems, we have these technical problems, we have these training problems. And sadly, not much was done or not enough was done between then and now to make a difference. And so the Navy has had to learn this lesson very painfully and very bitterly with these deadly losses. And there was a point in time earlier this year, I don't know if this is still the case, where peacetime Navy operations in the Pacific were deadlier than the U.S. conflict in Afghanistan. More troops were killed just on these normal voyages than by roadside bombs or ambushes. And so it's it's very sad. It's a bitter lesson. The Navy says it's going to learn these lessons and uh, get better and improve its readiness and training. But um, it's made those promises before. So we'll just have to see how well they actually do. Let's move, if we can, to uh, the State Department and and national security in that way. And and I want to cluster some things together and let you sort them out. Uh, We've got H.R. McMaster reportedly uh, calling the president an idiot and and demeaning his uh, intellectual capabilities. 
Uh, we had the reports of Secretary of State Tillerson uh, calling him uh, a blank moron uh, at, at one time. Uh, reports that I hear repeatedly uh, is that the State Department's in a major morale crisis and, and that uh, personnel issues there are, are horrible. So you've got two people maybe at odds with the president. You've got the State Department in turmoil. You've got the president sending uh, his daughter Ivanka to India uh, on on a mission, but the State Department saying they they aren't aren't going to support it with uh, all the staff that they usually do. What's going on here? Can you sort all this out for us a bit? I don't think anybody outside of the White House at the very senior leadership level understands whether there's any method to this madness and whether the conduct of this administration in its execution of foreign policy is a deliberate strategy to reduce what it views as the pernicious influence of the permanent uh, class of elbow patch type uh, Georgetown last names for first names tweed jacket types in the foreign policy <laughs> world or whether they are just uh, doing this because they don't know any better or because the Secretary of State, Mr. Tillerson, thinks that in the way the president sometimes expresses about himself, he's the only one who matters. And so he's at the top of the pyramid and he can express his views or issue policy from that level. And then all the lower level worker bees are immaterial. I don't know if anyone knows the answer. And it's certainly not something that those two leaders are ever drawn out about, in part because they don't do interviews with people who are likely to ask them about that, and also because um, they are so busy kind of handling the daily affairs of government. And in the case of Tillerson, he's been so busy handling the North Korea issue that it's not something that ever really comes up. But there are a lot of areas in which this is very consequential that people should know about. For example, the president gave a speech earlier this year in which he basically committed the U.S. military presence to Afghanistan in perpetuity. He took away any end date and said that an American withdrawal there would have to be conditions-based as opposed to at some point in 2020 or 2025 when the Afghans would have to meet some kind of timetable. And the Pentagon at that time said it was going to send about 4,000 more troops to Afghanistan to help beef up operations there. The president also said he was going to be relying on Pakistan and India to do more pressure of their constituents and uh, equities in the area to try and bring about the solution the United States want. But at the time he was doing that, the U.S. had no ambassador to Afghanistan nor an ambassador to India. There, were, <laughs> there was no mission in either capital where someone with the a Senate-confirmed ambassador with the confidence of the State Department and the president could represent the views of the United States to those governments. And so the president was essentially writing checks that the State Department wasn't prepared to cash. I, I haven't been following it closely enough since then to know whether those ambassadors have been nominated and confirmed. But that's a real-world example of where where you can make a speech in which you say, we want to use diplomacy to bring about a goal and then not have any actual diplomats to do the work to bring about that goal. Um, there are a lot of reports in the New York Times and Foreign Policy Magazine and elsewhere about the um, bargain basement levels of morale inside the State Department because there aren't ambassadors to a lot of important posts. There aren't a lot of executive leaders at the State Department to help formulate policy or to help run 
diplomacy from a regional perspective, the way the State Department is organized is there are bureaus for the Near East or for Asia, for South America, and the ambassadors in each individual countries work for those bureaus, which are run by assistant secretaries of states or people in equivalent positions. And a lot of those jobs are not being filled either. Um, the president has made light of this and a couple times when it's come up. Uh, the Russian government said it was going to kick out a, a number of American diplomats after the, the United States said it was going to kick out a number of Russian diplomats. And Trump said, oh, we were trying to get rid of those positions anyway, so right. the Russians are going to help us by uh, helping us with our layoffs. Right. Um, there, there were subsequent indications that he might have been making a joke, but he wasn't smiling and laughing when he said it. And that's why I, I began answering your question by saying, I don't know whether anyone knows why any of this is happening, but it, it has become a leitmotif in the foreign policy world for people to write a column or go out on TV or talk to interviewers and say, the State Department is really in bad shape right now. And the ability for the United States to interface with other nations around the world and make its case in ways apart from in the military context has been diminished. Um, we could get to a point a year from now where that is no longer true and just the backlog of nominations and confirmations might have been filled or if we're still in that way when we get to November of 2018, um, that could be very consequential because time moves on. And in the case of Asia, as we were discussing before, these Asian powers are going to form alliances on their own or make separate deals with the Chinese if they need to. And the same thing could happen in Europe or in the Middle East or other parts of the world. Uh, the United States might not um, have the opportunity to come into the conversation two years, three years, four years, five years from now and have the same discussions with these uh, countries or in these regions as it could if it was missing for that interim. Um, so we'll have to see whether that's the case. And, and if that is what happens, that could be consequential in a lot of parts of the world. One more player that we haven't discussed in the security world is uh, Michael General Michael Flynn. Uh, speculation uh, because his attorneys have now opted out of this pact where they were sharing information with other potential defendants and the White House, uh, that maybe some deals going on. It's caused a stir and a buzz, but is it more than that or is that all it is right now? Right now, it's a stir and a buzz. Um, Mr. Flynn's attorneys will not tell my colleagues here at NPR what to make of the New York Times story. Um, but if it were the case that he had agreed to help uh, the Justice Department special counsel Robert Mueller with some kind of investigation of the administration, that could be potentially very consequential. Um, Flynn was one of Trump's earliest and closest foreign policy advisors. He, he came onto the campaign very early in 2016 at a time when other national security leaders were signing their hashtag never Trump letters in which they said they would never go work for a Trump Pentagon or they would never go work for a Trump White House because they considered him too dangerous on these national security issues. And so Flynn was Trump's right hand for many months and one of the only military types to agree to do so until he became national security advisor in the administration for, I think, 24 days. And if he um, is talking with Mueller about the conversations he had with Trump or the things he saw while he was inside the room with Trump, that could be highly consequential, um, depending on what Mueller decides to do and depending on what Flynn says. Um, 
Flynn as national security advisor um, and during the transition before he entered the White House was talking with foreign leaders, including the Russian ambassador, allegedly about uh, horse trading type agreements where the uh, new Trump administration might agree to uh, relax sanctions on the Russians if they um, did something or in the view of conspiracy theorists, potentially as payment for whatever help the Russians gave to the Trump uh, campaign during the the actual election. Now, it's no longer um, disputed that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 race. That's a matter of fact at this point with an overt campaign involving uh, Facebook ads and social media manipulation, as well as a covert campaign of cyber attacks and overtures by intelligence officers and other agents to humans in the Trump orbit, including the president's oldest son, his campaign chairman, and his son-in-law, among others. Uh, the question is, how much did people in that Trump orbit reciprocate, and how closely might those people have coordinated with the Russians who were involved in this influence campaign? That's where the jury is still out, and that's what Mueller is investigating. Flynn is if he's cooperating with Mueller, potentially could speak to that in great detail. And if he does, that could be uh, very problematic for people in the Trump orbit if it doesn't turn out to be problematic for the president himself. Last uh, issue, Phil, and that's uh, I always want to give you the opportunity. You're the man on the inside. What should we out here as news consumers be looking for in the next few weeks? What what issues might we uh, want to pay attention to? One thing that's going to get a lot of attention in December is the outlook for the federal government because of a deal President Trump did with congressional Democrats earlier this year in which they agreed to a temporary measure to continue funding operations only through, I think, the middle of next month. And that's going to expire, and there's going to be a big fight in Washington over the defense budget, over the um, amount of spending for other departments. And the Democrats are in a position where they may need to provide the votes in Congress to pass whatever measure follows this temporary one, which means they could be in a position to ask the administration for concessions on various things. And so notwithstanding the Trump administration's goal to, for example, get a big tax bill passed by the end of the year, uh, Democrats could actually weaken that tax bill or get something else that they want from the president, because if they don't, they won't agree to support whatever funding bill takes place and the government could shut down, which could get a lot of attention. That may not affect the lives of most people because Many Americans don't interact with the federal government on a daily basis, except for the fact that many of Americans work for the federal government, and most federal jobs take place outside of Washington, D.C., uh, whether there are people who work in shipyards or who work in some other capacity in the country as opposed to in Washington. And so although that story is often painted as a, you know, slug farm types get to stay home type story, uh, it actually affects a lot more people in real America than it does in the Capitol. And if that comes to a head and the government shuts down, uh, that could cause a lot of pain because those people might not get paychecks, they might not show up for work, and all the things that Americans expect from the federal government won't happen. Um, it'll be an interesting question to see if the government shuts down, how long that lasts, and whether the president and Republicans are just willing to stand on their principles because they believe the politics are good, or whether they'll make a deal again with these Democrats in Congress. And I don't know what which way it's going to go, but that could be a 
that could be a, a pretty explosive story to watch. And it's not only federal workers, but uh, people always are concerned about getting their Social Security checks and, exactly. and uh, other forms of federal assistance through Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, that that always seems to strike a nerve, especially the Social Security checks. The other thing that gets a lot of attention, as uh, one person put it to me one time, is the Washington Monument strategy, where nobody knows whether or not U.S. Navy ballistic missile submarines are going to be continuing their secret patrols in the Pacific Ocean. But if you can't go to the Washington Monument, or you can't get into Acadia National Park, or Great Smoky Mountains, or do any of the other things that the federal government enables Americans to do through its operations, that makes people angry. And if we get to that point next month, especially around Christmas time, um, it could be an ugly situation. Or it's also entirely possible this could be resolved because neither side wants to force that battle and have a big splash uh, so close to the holidays. Well, Phil, as always, thank you so much for laying all this out in understandable terms for us. (laughs) We really appreciate your help. Sure. Thanks for having me. Today, we've talked with Philip Ewing, the National Security Editor for National Public Radio, about current issues of national security with the Trump administration. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please go to iTunes and rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.